Lord, for what you started, for what you're doing. Thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that you continue to work, continue to move wherever you are, wherever each individual is, Lord. I pray that you continue to draw them to you, draw them to yourself. Amazing, Michelle started with um, just what God is doing at at Asbury. Um, Some people are calling it a revival. Some people are very reluctant to call it a revival. There's been, like, social media has kind of, what they say, this is the first potential revival or move of God in the age of Twitter and TikTok. And so it's like... People are struggling to know how to deal with it, what to say, what not to say, what's their place to say or not. Some people, I think, are, claim that they're the, the people that are, um, they have the authority to, to, to label it, whether it's a revival or not. Some people are very enthusiastic for it because you've been praying and trusting for revival. But then I think at the same time, we don't actually even know what revival is. And there's a yearning and there's a longing for us to have something of a move of God. And some people call that revival. Some people call... So we're reluctant to try and define what it is. And I think there's a good godly caution of all the excesses. Of There's a good godly caution to actually say, but I don't want to label something that's not of you, of you. Because then whatever happens there gets attributed to God. And it's like... Okay, let's be cautious. And then the other side is actually, I don't want to be too quick to call it a revival because what if we get disappointed? What if it's not what we wanted? What if it doesn't lead to the transformation we long for? And it's like, well, if that's a revival, then what have we been waiting for? And so whether, you, whether you've been aware of it or not, I think there's, there's something that God is stirring whether it's globally or locally, revival is something that I'm, I'm longing for. And how I define that, it doesn't have to be the ultimate like arbiter, but these are some of the, the, the phrases that have, or definitions of revival that have shaped my thinking. A revival is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings a deep sense of the presence of God, a hunger for the Word of God, and a passion for prayer and evangelism. It is a work of God's grace that brings about a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, an awakening of the church, and a powerful impact on the world. Revival is a miracle. It is the Holy Spirit descending upon a church or a community or a college in a way that is entirely beyond our understanding or explanation. We cannot produce a revival through our own efforts or methods. It is a sovereign work of God. But at the same time, we must prepare ourselves for revival by being faithful in prayer, preaching the word, and living holy lives. We must ask God to come and visit us in power and be willing to be used by Him in whatever way He chooses. Revival above everything else is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the manifest presence of the Lord in the midst of His people. It is a sense of awe and reverence. A realization that one is in the presence of the Holy One. It is an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. 
It is a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. It is a new vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a new realization of his power, his grace, and his glory. It is a new manifestation of his love. And often you hear, we spoke about it last week, where there's the balance between the word and spirit and life. And I realize there's so much of that in in our, our churches, in our church experience, where I don't know where you come from, but... I walked into Kum Books yesterday, and it's like the Christian bookstore for South Africa. And the first thing I found was cups and cutlery and decorations to put around my house. That was the first third of the store. And then the next third was self-help books of how to get the power in your life, how to be transformed, how to, like, how to get the life you want. How to understand how the Bible is going to predict the future so you know exactly how to prepare. And I'm like, that's not what I, I read when I read the Bible. That's not what I see. That's not what I feel the thrust of Scripture is trying to talk about. Is there some prophecy of the future? Yes. But the thrust of that prophecy is not for you to figure out how it's all going to go so that you can invest wisely and be in the right countries and side on the right side politically it's so that you know that God is actively involved in the future. There is, there is a judgment coming. There is a day of the Lord coming. So, so take it seriously. But also don't worry. It's like God wins in the end. The, the, the question is what do we do with the time we've got and how do we live? And somewhere at the back of Kumbuks I actually found Bibles. It was amazing. <laughs> it was a small little shelf. But it's like... And it's not to criticize them, it's just they, they're giving people what they want. And I think it's a reflection of our hearts, of what we're longing for when we come to church. And when we're asking for revival, what are we asking for? Are we asking for good feelings? Like, I really want to be, I want to feel the power of God. Or I want God to come and fix all the things that I don't really want to fix on my own. It sounds harsh, but it's, it's like we, we're looking for, we can so easily come to God and say, God, give me the wise words so that I, I don't have to face any trouble. That's the one side. There's the word side. And then the spirit is, it's like, I, I'm coming to God so that in his power, he'll fix all the problems so that I don't have to deal with anything. And then you get the life side where it's like, come and just show me the benefits to this. So that I got community and I got family rights and I got my life right. And that's all I care about. But revival is supposed to be, it's a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. It is the normal ministry of the gospel, not something eccentric or even different from what the church is always charged to do. What sets revival apart is simply that our usual efforts greatly accelerate in their spiritual effects. God hits the fast forward button. God does what we can't do on our own, but it's what we are called to do. It's the normal lifting up of Christ. When people are so focused on the spirit, you realize the Bible all through the spirit elevates Christ. Christ is the like the, the visible representation of the Trinity. When we say Trinity Central, is you saying put God at the center of your life? Does that mean you, you put the spooky spiritual power at the center of your life? No. The Spirit, like, like it, 
Back in the day, it's the Holy Ghost. There's something mysterious. We don't understand it. There's something mysterious, and I love it. But this Holy Spirit elevates Christ. So we need to learn from Christ. Learn His ways. Learn what He did. Learn the way He discipled people. Learn the way He loved people. Because He is the Word. He's the Word that divides between soul and spirit, between sinew, between muscle. He's able to actually cut through What I wanted to speak on today, we'll see whether we get to it, is Hebrews 8. And the whole of Hebrews, it's one of my favorite books, but it's like one of the chunkiest books in the Bible. Because it talks about Jesus being better than angels, and better than Moses, and better than the priests, and better than the high priest. And he gives us a better covenant, and he, he, all of this, and all of that strange language. But it's so powerful because of what it means for us. So how do we tell whether a revival is truly a revival? How do we tell when God pours out something that it seems like it's God moving, but how, how can we define it? Because there's certain things that we attribute to a revival that doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's a move of God. And that could be our emotional experience. This heightened emotional experience. Because in a revival, in the move of God, there is emotional experience. And there can be. But when you go to a big concert, there's emotional experience. Physical manifestations. People being transformed. People being knocked over. People being like shaking. People just being stirred. Maybe there's signs and wonders and healing. None of those are guarantees that it actually it's a move of God. It can be. And I'm not standing here as the ultimate arbiter. This is coming from... Jonathan Edwards, actually, who experienced and went through revival. He's one of like the most notable like theologians of American history. And he, he went through a revival with Native Americans and he saw powerful signs and wonders and he saw manifestations. And he just said, how do we, how do we tell what God is doing and whether it's the healthy thing of God or whether it's not? And visions and dreams and powerful words of God doesn't guarantee that it's a move of God. It can come and they can be powerful and they can be encouraging, but that doesn't guarantee it. Or dramatic conversions even. People coming and declaring, ah, I come before God and I, I, I give my life to God. It, it, it takes time to see whether those are genuine and transformed. And I, it's hard to say because I, I don't want to be the ultimate judge of whether you saved or not because it's an internal heart transformation. God is the one who, who, who decides that. But he says what, what does this, like set a revival apart is a reverence for God. A fake revival cannot manipulate people into a holy reverence for God. A heightened love for Jesus. The Bible says that like no spirit that says like Jesus be accursed can come from him basically. So it's like as there's a heightened love for Jesus, you can know that God is actually working. An appreciation for his word. A conviction of sin. We, we saw in that testimony is somebody getting up and publicly confessing their sin and their brokenness. And that's what was one of the fundamental things that actually has sparked this outpouring. There's a couple of elements actually. They had like a normal chapel service. They weren't expecting, they weren't anticipating, they weren't trying to manufacture this outpouring or whatever it is. They had a normal chapel service where they worshipped God, where the word was preached, and they responded again in worship. 
And then somebody got up and confessed sin. And that has sparked what's nearly two weeks now of ongoing just times of worship and repentance and coming before God. Another element is true love for others. Because it can't be faked. Jesus says they will know this is the truth when you have love one for another. And it actually results in producing good works. But we can't tell that at the moment. Everything I, I look at, I'm saying, I think this, this looks like a genuine move of God. But I don't need to be the ultimate like judge of that. Because it's my opinion. Who, who really cares? What I do care about is longing for a, an outpouring of God in us, in our hearts. If we say revival is the normal working of the Spirit, we, almost, we don't even need to wait for that outpouring. Because what God has been doing here is raising up a love for His Word. Raising up a love for Christ. Raising up a love and appreciation and reverence for God. And resulting in love for one another. So that's what God does. But it's saying, God, would you do that in a way that we cannot manufacture a power greater than ourselves. That we just are convinced that this is true. And I need to change my life around it. Because that is the only thing that can lead to the transformation that you're longing for in your life. We've had words of people that are in broken places and struggling and hurt. And I have so much sympathy for that. But the reality is when you see what God has done for you, when you see who God is, He's going to put all of the challenges you are facing into perspective. That's why we say Trinity Central, when you put God, when you realize that God is at the center of your life, everything revolves around that and your problems become almost insignificant compared to the weight of who God is. When you understand the reverence that we can have for God, Like I said, Hebrews is a, a weighty book. It's quite a chunky book. But the, the essence of Hebrews is it describes everything that God has done for us in Christ. And he's speaking to you now and he's saying, don't neglect it. Don't lose track. Don't get distracted. Pursue the rest that God has for you. Pursue everything that God has for you. Put everything in place that you can. Because by faith, these guys did amazing things, testimonies of heroes of the faith, and it overflowed into their life. And because of that, live how you, that God has called you to. In Hebrews 8, it says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers. On that day, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenants, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If you're new to that language, a covenant is basically a deal between God and his people. It can be between two parties, but the way we talk about it, in the, like especially in biblical language, it's talking about the old covenant is the Mosaic law. It's the, the law that God made with Israel. And it was basically, it's like, these are the terms. You obey me, I will bless you. I will protect you. I'll provide for you as long as you obey my law. But if you are unfaithful, there's going to be consequences and there's going to be curses and I'm going to send you out of the land, all of that. And then he says, I'm going to make a new deal with you. I was thinking about, I don't know if any of you watch Stranger Things, but in the last season, there's a song. It's like Kate Bush is, I'll be running up that hill. And it's basically the whole song is, it's like, I want to make a deal with God. I want to make a deal with God in, in the song. And it's just like that song has been playing in my head. Not that that's the perfect analogy because she's trying to make a deal with God so that we could trade places so you could understand how I feel. But there's something about that in our life. We're like, okay, I'm going to make a deal with God. If I'm really good, then you'll fix this. If I fast enough, then you'll fix this problem. If I fast and pray enough, then maybe you'll fix my family, fix the, the sickness, fix this brokenness. And the whole thing is we want to make new deals with God. And we don't realize that God has already made the perfect deal with us. And he has secured it because he has given us the new covenant that actually, if we just believe, he promises us far beyond our wildest dreams. But if we compare the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, there's similarities and then there's differences. The similarities are the fact that it's an agreement between God and his people. They both require obedience and faithfulness. They both require us to worship, to put God in his rightful place, to understand it. And they both point forward to a future redemption or salvation that will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, they don't realize that actually the fulfillment was Christ. And we don't necessarily realize that there's still a full fulfillment when Jesus will come back. That we'll experience the fullness of the new covenant. But the difference is, that in the old covenant, it was just for Israel. The new covenant is for everyone. Everyone that believes. The old covenant required outward obedience to the law. The new covenant requires a new heart and faith. It requires obedience, but it starts with faith. It starts with an internal transformation that leads to a life that is changed. 
old covenant had temporary blessings of a new land and a land with fruit and like what milk and honey. But it was temporary. The new covenant comes with eternal consequences that will last literally for eternity. The old covenant had physical prosperity. The new comes with kingdom inheritance. The old covenant had Moses as a mediator between God and his people. And the new covenant has Jesus as our mediator, the perfect mediator. The old covenant required sacrifices for our sin. Once a year, the priests and the high priest would have to go in, into the presence of God. He was the one person in the whole country, in the whole community that could actually go into the presence of God. And to do that, he had to make sacrifices and cover over his sin. We've got Jesus who went in to the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice with his own body once forever so that we can all go into the Holy of Holies so that all of us can actually have the presence of God. We don't realize how powerful that is. The Israelites had like this whole temple and this whole setup to understand that there was one place where God would manifest his presence And we have the privilege of having that as a reality in our lives. And that's what we're praying for with an outpouring of the Spirit. We actually say, God, would you send your presence in a a more manifest, tangible way that would change our experience. We actually have access to God. The Old Testament, there was the priesthood. Now we have the priesthood of all believers. Where actually each and every one of us is called to function on behalf of the people around us to be representatives for them. The Old Testament had the law. New Testament, the new covenant has grace and truth. The Old Testament had the Holy Spirit was on like select individuals were anointed for specific roles. The new covenant, we all have the Holy Spirit. There's so much we can go in with the priestly like roles. They had offering sacrifices. They would have to teach. They would intercede for the people. They would maintain the temple. They would judge disputes between people. They would bless the people. And now we all get to play a part in that because we can all represent God in people's lives. And then the high priest was the ultimate representation of the priests in the Old Testament. And he would be the mediator, the leader. He would be the one who had the authority to speak on behalf of the priests. He was the one who had the anointing. He was the one who could go into the holy place. But he was also the one who had fancy robes. He had like fancy dress. He had like a specific outfit that he would wear. And one of the the elements of his outfit was a, a breastplate. He would wear this specific breastplate that had the 12 stones that represented the people. Because he would carry the people on his chest, on his heart, into the presence of God. Now I read something. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. Breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to the regular remembrance before the Lord. So he would carry their names into the holy of holies. Because he knew that it required judgment. And when you contrast that to Ephesians 6.14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on 
the breastplate of righteousness. In the Old Testament, we got the priests going into the Holy of Holies, carrying our names for judgment, basically. Representing the people for judgment, of saying, God, would you judge them, but actually cover over their, ju- their sin? Would you please cover over their sin? And then Jesus has done that. He's actually provided a covering for our sin so that we can walk around with a breastplate of righteousness. That becomes our strength. And there are so many parallels between this chapter of the reason why we can walk with no condemnation from last week. That you can walk around with no condemnation, not because of what you have done, but because of what our mediator has done, what our high priest has done. It is done. It is finished. In Hebrews it talks about, therefore, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. The God that we serve is the God that appeared on the mountain of Sinai when he was giving the old covenant in thunder and fire and smoke to the point where the people of God said, we can't go near, otherwise we're going to die. So Moses, you go up for us. We don't want to get close to God. I created this fear of God in a healthy way, in, a, in an understandable way, because God is God. It's like if you approach him, if you see him, in the wrong way, you die. And it's this God that Jesus has made a way for us to approach. Boldly approach his throne of grace. Because even when he was speaking to Moses, like he comes in and he, he goes into the tabernacle and God speaks to him from the mercy seat. Like even in this picture of this judgment of understanding the weightiness of our sin and the brokenness, God speaks from the mercy seat. He speaks from the place where it's like, I want to make a way to have mercy upon my people. To have mercy on their sin. To cover over with grace and truth. That's why we have to lift up Jesus in these times. Lord, I ask you for a fresh outpouring. fresh outpouring of your spirit, we would actually understand these truths. Lord, take anything that I've said that is actually of you and cemented in people's hearts, but anything that's not, would you let it fall away, Lord? I pray that you would be lifted up so we would understand just the weightiness of this. The beauty of this. The truth of this. That as we put you at the center of our lives, everything begins to revolve around you, Lord. 